Good morning, folks, and thank you for tuning in to The Global Current, Seton Hall's School Diplomacy Podcast. Each week, we break down a new topic in global affairs and have a conversation with students to analyze different perspectives. This is your host, Eric Bunce. Today, we're discussing China's Uyghur abuses and recent Western responses. But before we dive into it, let's check in with this week's news briefer, Brady Black, who will update us on headlines from around the globe. Brady? Thanks, Eric. The takeover of the strategic city of Palma in northern Mozambique has raised many questions on foreign intervention. After ISIL-linked fighters seized the city last month, the African nation has been under pressure to seek foreign military aid to help with the insurgency. Since 2017, the fighting, localized in the northern province of Cabo Delgado, has displaced over 700,000 and killed over 2,500. Currently, Mozambique does not seek to allow foreign soldiers to provide aid. However, President Felipe Neuzi did call for, quote, immediate technical deployment at a special summit of the South African development community held last Thursday in the capital, Maputo. The Associated Press has released evidence for what it is calling an ethnic cleansing of Tigrayans. Interviews with refugees conducted by the AP tell of the abuses currently ongoing in the region, from mass killings to distribution of IDs labeling someone if they are Tigrayan. This report comes after Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed Ali had called the conflict, quote, difficult and tiresome, and assured the international community that the fighting had lessened. Greenland's snap general election cast into doubt the future of the planned mining projects. With the discovery of many rare earth minerals, the election last Wednesday boiled down to whether or not the island would seek to mine them, which could have massive economic effects. The main opposition party, Inuit Atikatigate, won the most parliamentary seats in the election, running on a platform stating that the minerals would not be harvested as the environmental risks associated with such a project outweighed any benefit. Soon Scheller, program manager for Greenpeace Denmark, said that the uranium byproducts of the mining are the main concern for the party. The opposition has not been against rare earth minerals as such. The, the opposition has specifically been against that this mine would also come with uranium mining. There are other mines there where you can go and look and dig for rare earth minerals where you don't get uranium as a byproduct and where you don't get the same environmental uh, consequences. India's Supreme Court rejected a plea to stop detained Rohingya from being deported back to Myanmar last Thursday. The petition brought before the court had stated that under India's constitution, the practice of non-refoulement, which makes it illegal to expel refugees to countries where they will likely be persecuted, was included. Under current legislation, there are no protections for refugees in India, leaving them to be treated as illegal immigrants, which under Prime Minister Narendra Modi's administration are viewed as a national security threat. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Andrei Tehran has announced that the country will not back down despite Russia ramping up its military presence on the Crimean Peninsula. Fighting in eastern Ukraine has increased recently, with Russia deploying troops and warships to its border. This latest development comes after Ukraine announced last week that it plans to hold joint military drills with NATO later this year. Okay, thank you so much, Brady. Now for today's topic. On March 22nd, the United States and various Western allies imposed sanctions on certain Chinese officials linked to human rights abuses in Xinjiang province, Western China. Over the past years, the ethnically distinct and Muslim Uyghur people have been detained in, quote, re-education camps. While information is tightly controlled, reports have emerged of appalling conditions. Recently, these human rights violations have become a flashpoint between the West and China. What can we discover about these events in Xinjiang? And what efforts will these recent sanctions have? 
Joining me today to discuss this and more are two of our own Seton Hall students. Our domestic analyst for today is Drew Starbuck. Welcome to the show, Drew. Thank you, Eric. Happy to be here. Thank you. And today's international analyst is Liam Brucker Casey. Welcome, Liam. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back on. Okay. So before we dive into the recent sanctions, I want to go back a little bit, zoom out, uh, and ask and get some background. And Liam, let me start with you. Um, who are the Uyghurs? Uh, and where where do they live? So the Uyghurs are an ethnic group um, in the uh, western um, portion of China uh, in a dent in a uh, fairly sparsely uh, populated area uh, called Xinjiang. And uh, basically, they're a Turkic uh, linguistic group. Basically, uh, they um, are in the same language or their language is in the same language family as Turkish, Kazakh. Um, Kyrgyz, um, Turkmen, um, they are not Turkish, but, um, and they uh, practice Islam as well. So they're distinct from Han Chinese, um, but they have been in the area for hundreds of years, um, just as the Han Chinese or uh, Mongols or um, any other uh, group within China. Um, but because of their religion and their uh, general uh, traditional languages, uh, they've been kind of uh, seen as distinct and uh, different from the rest of, of China's population. It's also important to note that the Uyghurs became Islamicized in around the 10th century and have been in the area since that time, as Liam stated. And also, it is only recently that they have been chosen for these re-education centers. It was a part of President Xi Jinping's new administration plans in 2015 with the main goal of ensuring adherence to national ideology. And Mo, this was in a response to what's called the East Turkmenistan movement, which has led some, which some Uyghurs have taken part in to establish like an East Turkestan, as the Uyghurs are descended of Turkish descent. So in many ways, this is a people that have been in the region for a long time. However, it's only just recently that they have come into conflict with the Chinese national government. And if I could just quickly add on one more thing, I think um, it's important, like Drew was also saying, um, the uh, Uyghur people are not you know, newly arrived or um, anything like that. In fact, um, some of the listeners might uh, remember a flag, a, a five-colored flag with five stripes. Um, I believe blue, black, yellow, red, white, um, representing the five distinct ethnic groups um, within China at the beginning of the 20th century um, during the uh, you know, revolution and a kind of transition towards a republic and eventually to the um, People's Republic of China. Um, but that's because uh, the Uyghurs were one of those five distinct ethnic groups along with Han Chinese, uh, Tibetans, um, Mongolians, and the Manchus would be the others. Um, and so by no means are the Uyghurs um, a distinct, or they are a distinct people, but they're um, absolutely just as Chinese as any other um, citizen of China. Okay, well, <laughs> thanks for that extensive overview. Um, I'm glad to see that we have some lovers of history uh, in this podcast. Me too. And so what you're basically saying is that they're a distinct ethnic group 
from the vast majority, uh, which I think we noted is Han Chinese. Um, so they are a distinct ethnic group and they practice a different religion. And part of the reason they're being singled out for this re-education is fear of separatist movements, as you hinted, Drew. Can you expand more uh, on why China has been targeting them specifically? Because these kind of actions don't get just taken for, for no reason. Drew? So I'm happy to expand upon that, Eric, but this is also uh, a complicated kind of political dance that has taken place in a political movement. The East Turkmenistan movement is not just a Uyghur movement. It's happened all across Central and Eastern Asia in many places. However, the Chinese have kind of followed the lead in a lot of Western nations during the war on terror that began after 9-11 and thus have used that to ensure their what they view as their national security against a threat such as the Uyghurs and the East Turkmenistan movement. Uh, they are responding to like the 1977 bus bombings in Urumqi, a uh, protest in Gujali, the June 2009 and riots. Uh, and specifically uh, bus attacks, cholera attacks, all these different phenomenons that have happened basically from the late 1990s into the 2000s into the early 2010s. So uh, persistent attacks have happened from this East Turkmenistan movement. However, a lot of these are not so much as a result of the Uyghur people as a whole, the population, but a few radical extremist groups with, located within the greater movement. However, uh, the Chinese government has taken this uh, this threat to their national security and used it to install their policies of re-education in their camps. Mm -hmm. Okay, so these acts of, well, I'm sure you could consider, I'm sure what China considers terrorism um, from certain extremist groups advocating this, this uh, separatist movement of, for East Turkmenistan has led China to do this this crackdown. And I'm just calling it a crackdown, but I think we should probably go into more detail about what China is doing uh, allegedly in these camps. Liam, can we start with you on that one? Um, yeah, well, just to kind of continue off what Drew was saying, um, in the last couple of decades, uh, the world has kind of seen a kind of a rise in um, terror, specifically kind of Islamic terror, not to say that that's the only um, kind of uh, terror movements that have um, started to increase. But just like the United States dealt, has dealt with uh, terror attacks, uh, much of Europe, Russia, um, the same has happened in China. Um, and the big Muslim population in China is the Uyghurs, um, or one of the bigger uh, populations. And uh, I think a lot of people think about Islam, they might think of the Middle East, um, and while, of course, that is also a big factor, um, actually the largest uh, Muslim populations in the world are actually in Asia, specifically Indonesia, um, India, actually, uh, Bangladesh, Pakistan. Um, we, so in that sense, um, a lot of these terror attacks have been carried out by individuals who have had ties to other Asian and Middle Eastern um, terror cells as it's kind of a crossroad, Central Asia. Um, and uh, the Chinese have basically, um, where the Europeans and Americans might take their own kind of 
um, approach that might be rife with certain human rights abuses and might have a lot of criticism. Um, the Chinese approach basically um, took that and basically uh, put it on steroids, basically, um, to where they're not just violating privacy or, um, you know, uh, infringing on certain um, practices. They basically um, interned every single person um, or just about um, in the population who's not Han Chinese. And um, the when you look at the birth rates that have plummeted um, in the region compared to the overall birth rate, um, I, I don't know how you could ever say that there isn't a massive um, orchestrated government attempt to clamp down on the population. Um, I believe it's something like 50% drop, um, sometimes even more, um, in population growth or birth rate, uh, whereas you'll see a 60% drop in Xinjiang and maybe a 10% drop in the rest of China. Um, clearly, that's not a coincidence. Just to continue off of Liam's points of well, what's happening in the camps as well, it's important to note that Xinjiang, the province in which this is occurring, was normally operated as an autonomous province, like kind of separate from the main Chinese nationalist government. However, mm -hmm. that is not the reality of the situation, as Liam expounded upon. They're clamping down hard. Also, the camps of which the re-education centers, as the Chinese government calls them, operate outside the legal system. Many, and many Uyghurs have been interned without trial and no charges have been levied against them. They're just being held there. Uh, BBC's latest statistic estimates that as of 2019, it is estimated that the Chinese may have detained up to 1.5 million people. And this not just includes Uyghurs, but Islamicized Mongols in the region, or Turks, or anyone within the Xinjiang province. And local authorities are holding hundreds of thousands of these people and continuing to gather more and more. As Liam expounded upon the population control, it's often been reported incidents of enforcing birth control on the population or forcing Uyghur women to uh, basically breed with Han men, Han Chinese men in attempts to dilute the ethnicity of the population. As a result, it's really it's why people are starting to refer this this policy as a genocide for what it is. Okay, wow. So there seems to be a a really huge movement here, or I shouldn't call it a movement, a huge effort here uh, by the Chinese government to suppress the the population uh, and the culture of the Uyghur people. And it's done partially in these, these quote-unquote re-education camps, um, but also actions are being taken outside of the camps as well. Um, but I do want to I do want to go back to these these camps. Do we have any idea? And I know the information's tight on it. Do we have any idea what's going on uh, inside them? Um, Reeducation doesn't sound like a pleasant experience, but I, I I don't know. Maybe it's just because I don't. I've spent the last twelve years of my life in school, and it never was a truly pleasant experience. But can you tell me what's going on inside these reeducation camps? The fact that, like you said. Um, we know very little, but the fact uh, that we already know what we know, um, considering there's probably a lot that is not available to us, um, is, I think, pretty damning. The fact that we have credible reports of forced abortions, forced sterilization, um, people are uh, forced uh, against their will, obviously, with the threat of violence, 
um, to attend these um, places where they will be basically, um, oftentimes children are separated from their parents so that they can be raised, um, you know, in a way that is um, separate from, you know, traditional Uyghur culture, religion, language. Um, I, I think it's a very forced attempt to basically um, make uh, the Uyghurs, Uyghurs no longer, basically. Just to expand upon what, again, upon what Liam is saying, it's also, he made the uh, mention of depriving them of their uh, cultural identity and their religious identity. It's not just violence perpetrated against them, it's more an erosion of their identity. Uh, they're depriving them of doing the traditional five prayers a day that a Muslim should do. Uh, they're forcing them to speak Han Chinese, that specific dialect. They can't speak in their own dialect or their own language. Uh, there's no access to the Quran. Uh, policies such as this. And also media access to the camps has been restricted as well. John Sudsworth, who is a BBC reporter, uh, did, was able to access the camps and report at least a little bit of one, but he was said that he was constantly monitored by Chinese officials who went through the photos that he took. And after gaining some global recognition for the stories he reported, he ha ended up having to leave the country of China, despite being BBC's China correspondent, and now lives in Taiwan, still reporting on them from there. So it's important to note that despite what we already know, there's probably more going on, and it's still very restricted to get into any of those centers. Yeah, in many ways, what we don't know is just as interesting as what we do know. And what we don't know is a lot. But what we do know is pretty disturbing. Um, and that's kind of scary uh, for for what, what we don't know. Um, yeah, let's let's turn to the, the more recent story at hand, which are these recent sanctions. And Drew, can you just give us the rundown? on what these sanctions look like and who are they targeting? Because I understand it's not, you know, a traditional blanket sanction against the economy of one country. It's targeted against certain officials. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, of course, Eric. Um, it's more, as you said, targeted against specific individuals, specifically uh, around 10 to 20 officials associated with the Xinjiang province. Uh, the one person to note there, who I believe, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correct, is Zhu Hailun, who is basically described as the architect of the Xinjiang camps and uh, Uyghur re-education centers, and has a long history in the province, the former secretary of the Political and Legal Affairs Committee of the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, and has been on numerous party committees. and. Uh, specifically, he's been, there's been asset bans on his assets overseas and freezing those assets as well. And he's prevented by the EU from traveling to any nation within the European Union, as well as the United States, uh, the UK and Canada as well. And it's important to note that the EU, this was a unified effort by the US, the UK, Canada and the EU. The EU has not put on sanctions against China since 1980. 1989 with the Tianjin Square incident. So Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen Square. My apologies. So it's been a it's been a very long time that so that shows you how serious this matter really is. Uh, of course the question is as we talked about this has been going on for some years going back to I think at least 2015. 
um, although it's picked up more recently. Why now? What's triggered these sanctions now? Is it the the new administration? Um, Liam, do you want to take this one? Um, sure. I, I think um, in the definitely in the last decade, um, the uh, China, uh, China under uh, Xi Jinping has really started to, I mean, it has been, but especially under his leadership, um, has really started to flex its kind of international muscle in terms of supplanting the United States, uh, never um, officially or never overtly, but, you know, starting to make inroads um, in many African countries, in many Asian countries, even in uh, Central Asia, um, Eastern Europe. The So in that sense, um, these recent sanctions are about uh, the Uyghur genocide, but they're also not really about the Uyghur genocide. Um, there, it really is taking place in the broader context of um, increasing tensions between U.S. and uh, between the U.S. and its allies, and uh, China and its allies. Um, in that sense, uh, because a lot of the officials involved with the clampdown on Hong Kong were also sanctioned. Um, other Chinese officials, it's not just limited to uh, the Uyghur genocide. And I think the reason that we saw this recently is, um, I think under the Obama administration, there was still a certain level of um, amicability and trying to uh, maintain cordiality. And there is still that to a certain extent. But I think particularly under the Trump administration, while um, the uh, implementation and execution of it was certainly um, hit or miss. I think there was a ramping up of hostility, at least vocally. Um, and I think de definitely as the Trump administration uh, recognized the situation in Xinjiang as a genocide um, at the last day of its presidency, uh, the last day of the administration, um, I think the Biden administration has really just carried that torch. Mm -hmm. So these sanctions aren't just part of uh, the, the actions, the more recent actions of China. It's part of a much larger buildup between tensions uh, between the U.S. and China or the West in China, I should say. Drew, you looked like you had something to add. Just to kind of continue off Liam and your point, Eric, as well as just uh, the Biden administration has taken a different approach to the Trump administration. However, they are still maintaining a tough on China policy. However, I think the key difference between the Biden administration and the Trump administration is the Trump administration and its efforts in the trade war and economic sanctions placed against China went at it alone as just the United States, whereas the Biden administration is coming with sanctions with the EU, the UK, Canada, reliable economic allies that could potentially damage China economically if they're not careful. However, it's notable that these responses are personal sanctions against leaders associated with the camps themselves. They're not part of a broader effort. But President Biden is coming out and saying that uh, we are serious about your human rights violations, that what you're doing is there. However, he's not starting a broader trade war or a tit-for-tat sanctions battle, so to speak. And I think it's important to note about I read an interesting article about Biden sort of reviving the Truman Doctrine and preparing the United States for a battle of the democracy against the rest of the world, against the rise of authoritarianism. And in many ways, that's represented by the Chinese government. And so Biden's administration is under no 
preset ideas about uh, China becoming a responsible stakeholder in the international system. They recognize that China is a reliable can be a key partner for certain international issues. However, they are a competitor now, and that is very evident. Yeah, so there's no going back to the amicability of Clinton and, and you know Obama era relations with China. Um, and then of course I want to get to uh, China's response. So these were relatively personal sanctions. Uh, undoubtedly, they're not happy about it. Um, how have they responded? to these sanctions. So I can expand upon that a little bit, but uh, specifically it's worth really to note that China also kind of did the same thing that the EU, the US, the UK did as well as that they placed personal sanctions on certain politicians within the EU and in the United States and Canada. And they're lessening their attempts. It's just uh, you place personal sanctions against some of our officials, we're doing the same to you. It's not an escalation, so to speak. Uh, China recognizes that it has to be a little more careful now that it's not just the United States coming at it, it's a coalition of allies. Uh, that does not mean that their uh, diplomats are not unleashing on social media furious tweets about this is damaging China's sovereignty, things such as that. And I think it's important to note that this is not just uh, an economic sanctions thing. This is going to be something that you're going to see continually throughout the rest of this century between China and the United States. It's a battle for ideals. It's very asymmetrical. Uh, the Chinese government at the same time it's protesting like restrictions are uh, using social media to expand its platform is also restricting social media and internet access for its population. So it's a very interesting phenomenon that will continue to develop. Um, I also think that uh, another aspect of this, or well, not really another aspect, but um, a, another kind of um, example that shows how um, in ways this has escalated. Obviously the Chinese response wasn't completely disproportionate, but um, I think the overall tone has definitely become more abrasive, especially for this early on in a new um, presidential administration. Um, we had the uh, we had the US Secretary uh, of State, uh, Antony Blinken, meet with a Chinese delegation in Anchorage, Alaska um, in mid-March. And the uh, interaction was um, pretty breathtaking in how aggressive it was. Basically, before, uh, just before um, the U.S. delegation met with that uh, with their Chinese counterparts, um, they imposed um, numerous sanctions on uh, individual officials. And then cameras are rolling as everyone's going into the um, area where they're all going to meet. And basically, all, while cameras are rolling. Um, they trade jabs. Um, the U.S. Uh, under uh, Blinken basically states that, well, our allies are actually very happy that the United States is stepping up back into its role. Um, he accused them of human rights abuses. Um, the Chinese delegation um, basically said, well, the U.S. really shouldn't be talking about these kinds of things considering your um, yeah. struggle with um, uh, brutality against African Americans, um, to which Blinken, um, among other things, responded, "Well, at least we um, actually acknowledge our failings." Um, and 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 so you see this really aggressive um, mm -hmm. on-camera display. I, I think at 
various times, um, both the U.S. and Chinese delegation, um, as reporters were about to leave, called them back in and said, wait, no, no, I have like some more insults to, to lob at the um, opposing delegation, right? Um, now, that's not to say that it was only um, a, a food uh, flinging fest. Uh, I think after the uh, cameras left and the reporters um, left the uh, delegations to talk, there was um, substantial discussion that uh, apparently was fruitful. Mm -hmm. but, but that kind of a thing, that kind of an interaction is, is pretty unprecedented. Um, and in just how openly aggressive it is, um, I mean, it's pretty remarkable. And I think it kind of sets a tone for what's going to happen uh, yeah. in the next coming years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yikes. Uh, we can only hope that talks are more productive behind closed doors because you have the world's arguably, no, more than arguably, the world's two most powerful nations going at it again. Uh, it's not exactly what you want. Um, and then one last question is all we have time for. Uh, I want to ask you guys what you think. Do you think these sanctions will be effective? And um, I mean, you mentioned the last time sanctions were applied was in 1989 in response to Tiananmen Square. And I know in that case, um, sanctions were applied, people were outraged, Chinese government just waited it out, and nothing ever happened. And people went back to doing trade with China because it was such an economic powerhouse, a growing economic country. So do you think that these sanctions will make any difference? Well, Eric, I think it's, I think you made a good point about the previous sanctions done in, and where, as China recognizes now that it has a more, how do I, how do I want to put this? They have a more opponent who recognizes their strengths, who recognizes what the, what their game plan is. But the Chinese have always been forward thinking, very forward thinking in their policy and how they plan out their moves uh, 10, 20 years in advance. So for them, right now, it may not be the best. They can be, of course, abrasive in their dialogue, as shown by the Anchorage conference and their social media accounts of their public officials. However, actions wise, they may be content to just wait this out and see what happens. It'll be interesting to see because as noted in the news briefing earlier and now, the Biden administration has taken a pretty set defiant tone when defending democratic freedoms, uh, whether it be in UK or Ukraine against Russia and how that situation is escalating, the Uyghurs now in China. So mm -hmm. how this develops will be interesting. I don't think these specific sanctions that we're speaking about today will be particularly effective. However, what comes from this is what's going to be interesting to watch. And then, Liam, real quickly, you get the uh, the final word. Yeah, I agree. I think these initial sanctions aren't necessarily going to um, make that big of a change. And I don't really think they're intended to, obviously. I think they're, they're intended to kind of send a message and kind of lay the groundwork for further um, retaliation uh, for certain violations of norms. Um, I think... Um, it's important to recognize that it seems that the Biden administration certainly is um, willing and uh, looking forward to kind of stepping up to be an influential power. Um, I think the idea that somehow Biden um, or his administration is soft on China, it's just not really based in reality. Um, and I, I think uh, Drew also mentioned earlier that that I think 
uh, uniquely, uh, the Biden administration is really um, embracing a cooperative approach, um, which is the only viable approach, at least in my opinion. Uh, the U.S. alone will not really be able to significantly impact China, um, but with its allies, um, it may be able to do that. Gentlemen, this has been a, a truly fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for joining us, you know, in your dorm rooms with your roommates and everything. Um, I appreciate it so much. That is all for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not be possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jared Dang, associate producers Jasmine DeLeon, Joaquin Matsumis, technical producers, Joel Moran and Brittany Segura, and assistant technical producer Jason Marieski. I am your host, Eric Bunce. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you. <laughs>